Broadway Bullet, Volume 807, Balancing the Load, for October 12th, 2017. Don't miss a single episode of Broadway Bullet. Subscribe to the podcast for free at broadwaybullet.com or on iTunes. Ben Heller from Aurora Productions stops by to explain the detailed, often Byzantine, process of the Broadway load-in. Why does it cost so much? You'll find out. Also, Dutch actress Babette Godfroy discusses the process of getting and maintaining a performance visa in the United States. While Katie Kozlowski discusses her new venture, Loving to Be Me, where her goal is to help artists love themselves through a process that involves constant rejection. In addition, we're going to hear music from Karen Mason and Paul Rolnick. So hang on. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and we're back with Volume 807, Balancing the Load. Got a lot of great stuff for you on this episode. And I would also like to remind people that I am going to be in New York doing interviews at the Dramatist Guild Fund from October 23rd to the 27th. So if you've got an interesting story that you'd like to pitch that you think other people out there could benefit by hearing, uh, drop me a buzz. My email is broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. And we're looking for all sorts of people to talk to. So, uh... With all that said, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. All right, and we are also sponsored by uh, the program I run at the University of Providence in Great Falls, Montana, Theater and Business Arts. You're going to learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist because it takes managing your own business as a creative person to make it in this career. So check us out at uprovidence.edu. We also have a link with information at broadwaybullet.com. Backstage. I am sitting here with Ben Heller, who is the president, owner, runner of Aurora Productions. For that... better or for worse. <laughs> so uh, artist and businessman. And uh, he also, we're going to talk a lot about Everything he does, but I specifically invited him in be, to talk about this big, expensive beast of a mystery on Broadway, which is the load in and load out. Uh, why does it cost so much? 
what do people need to plan for? What can go wrong if they don't plan right? Yeah, I, absolutely. Well, the reason I have a fundamental job is because of the load-in and the costs <laughs> associated with loading in a Broadway show. <laughs> so I guess in, in a nutshell, uh, the load-in is the time period where you come into uh, every Broadway theater comes with nothing except for seats for the audience, mm -hmm. house lighting, and then you get to a proscenium opening and there's nothing upstage. Uh, sometimes absolutely nothing in a hemp house and sometimes a rigging system that was designed about 100 years ago <laughs> when scenery was all soft and nothing weighed a lot. Uh, but any Broadway, especially musical now, uh, trumps the uh, original engineering of the building. <laughs> um, and it's my job to uh, oversee the, the, the physical production of the, the scenery at the, at the scene shop and putting together all the rentals of the lights and the sound and then overseeing the crew to get the, the show in the building. Uh, and, you know, in a nutshell, the... The biggest reason a job that I have, which didn't exist 20 years ago, exists is that load-in period, just from a labor standpoint, can cost from 300000 uh, for a small play to, you know, one and a half, two, and upward millions yeah. of dollars till you get to a first preview. So it's a, it's a pretty daunting amount of money, and uh, there's a daunting number of rules. Broadway is filled with... I don't even know the total number of unions, but something like 12 <laughs> or 15 unions uh, from the, the guy who opens the door to uh, uh, the ticket takers, but the local one stagehands, which are the, the bulk of the workforce that put up a show during the load-in, um, they have had a very strong bargaining position since the late 1800s when their union started, and they've negotiated very well for themselves, and they get paid a lot. And the trade-off of that is how to... My job is really to make that process as efficient as possible. Um, and, you know, it, 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 every show is different, but I'd say if you kind of took a, a, a template for a, a play, you have two or three 53 or 48-foot tractor trailers worth of stuff <laughs> scenically and a one-ish tractor trailer worth of lighting and a, a half of that of sound and then wardrobe and van loads of props. And all of that stuff has to get <laughs> from wherever it has come from mm -hmm. and onto a Broadway stage and working. Um, so there's the load and then there's the tech period, yeah. uh, which the, the lines are a little blurred. There's, there's rules that outline different things you can do during different phases of the load in. From the first thing we do is we spot and we rig um, the theater, which is when just the carpenters come in and they put all the wheels on the grid where things need to hang from. Um, and then the next phase usually is an electric spree hang when we bring the light. Everything that goes above the stage comes in. We get it all off the stage floor and clear it out. And then the scenery comes in after that <laughs> when the electricians go out into the front of house. Um, and then, depending on the complexity of the show, the, the phase of making it all work so we can tech the show can range from... Uh, an hour if it's a standing <laughs> unit set yeah. to a week or yeah, what, two. What stands the unit anymore? But yeah, play, some very, well, there, but are, there are some, but then, you know, uh, we we did a show this spring mm -hmm. uh, that looks like it's in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. You look like you come into the Belasco Theater right now to see Glass Menagerie, and there is a concrete floor and a back wall of the theater and a, ch and a table. Uh, however, during the course of that show, that table moves upstage about 22 feet 
yeah. uh, and we don't want to show the audience how. So we have a poured concrete floor, and sections of it drop away, yeah. and a section of the floor push-up stage, and sections replace yeah. itself. It rains on the stage. <laughs> so even though it looks really simple, the load-in of that show took as long as any of our shows that have physical standing okay. scenery in it. So it's, you know, it is... It's different. Every group of people putting a show together is different. Some shows come from England. Yeah. They've been done before. Uh, the, the, the architecture of Broadway theaters in particular tend to be very wide, proscenium-wise, and pretty shallow because of real estate costs in New York. Yeah. Um, and because of that, almost every show that comes from England, where the theaters happen to be very narrow and very deep, <laughs> have to kind of adapt for sight lines and everything else. Um, so... You know, little elements of that all factor in, but the load-in is really when the, the bolting together of the scenery happens um, and the way, you know, you're in the middle of the, the heart of New York, uh, you have major scrutiny from the fire department, um, from insurance companies, for the theater owners usually aren't the lead producers, so they want to make sure everything's up to <coughs> snuff. So the, on Broadway, we're very cognizant of <clears throat> um, how to... Fireproof. Yeah. How to make sure that everything is noted as fireproofed? We've tested everything. That was like I actually brought in. It was just for just a festival thing, but I brought our students out to perform in Nymph. Uh huh. And one of the biggest things on bringing something from over there to here was figuring out how the heck we could get fired because they, there was no person who could fire certify us in Montana. Yep. And we couldn't load in there until yeah. we were fireproof. Oh. So get, you know, figuring out somebody who could. How we could get it fireproofed in our, not fireproof, but <laughs> in a container. Yeah. So we, we did figure out how to get the stuff fireproof, but then mm -hmm. to get it certified right. before we load it in, yeah, it's. Well, it's one thing, and we've had yeah, that problem, yeah. especially coming from England, mm -hmm. as a specific for us, where, you know, I'd say we do something like 20 ish, 25 shows a year, not all on Broadway, mm -hmm. but a lot of them fall into the same fireproofing land. Uh, where it doesn't matter if it's fireproof or not in mm. England. No, you no. The New York Fire Department doesn't care what yeah. stamp yeah. is on it from England. So about half of the people in my office actually have the certificate. So next time, oh. give me a call. Okay, we well. can we can actually write. We do we can flame test the scenery. We can cut off soft goods and burn them and write. Certificates. Yeah, it was finding somebody who but could do it. That's why we did it yeah. in our office about uh, ten years ago or so, we were running into some of the same problems, or you had to bring in a, a big company and they charged a lot of money and they were really not doing anything other than testing mm -hmm. stuff, um, because there's two layers of it. Like you said, there's yeah. treating stuff and there's yeah. testing it. And a lot of times, things are inherently, for any theater worldwide, mm -hmm. flameproof, because there are these standards, yeah. but they're not, they don't have a little raised stamp that the New York Fire <laughs> Department likes to see. But even, yeah. you know, there's the fireproofing and even the electrical installation, which is done show by show, you have to hire a master electrician that's certified with New York City to file an electrical file. Like it's like a Department of Labor's thing that you stick on the big uh, bull switch where you power up the show. <laughs> and uh, it's filed with the Department of uh, Buildings in New York. And so it's another layer. And people want to ask why Broadway shows cost so much. Part of it is we're conforming to you know, parts of the building code and we're paying stagehands that have, you know, very good benefits and get paid a good hourly wage. We're renting a theater. Everyone's looking to make a, a little corner of, of the action. And if you think about theater, uh, you know, a, a, a physical set might cost, again, kind of yeah. $200,000, $300,000 for a play all the way up to, you know, we do shows for Disney and for the big, you know, millions of dollars. Um, but if you look at the building that's being built, 
we're always asked and really forcibly asked to deliver that show by the first preview. There is no like, oh, we can wait till tomorrow. Well, even beyond that, like how many companies are there that are qualified and experienced with doing this load in, load out? It's interesting. It's, you know, it kind of goes back to how we call ourselves production managers. Um, in the regional world, uh, production manager is really an administrator who does like an overall calendar, and then there's a technical director. Some people call us technical directors. Because the Broadway theaters don't come with a scene shop mm-hmm. or in anything, the word is really interchangeable on Broadway because we're basically in charge of the scheduling and of the, the actual technical theater. And what has happened is in the 80s, the costs weren't this high. So what really happened was a, a, a production carpenter was really the person in charge of getting your show up. Um, and you know, general managers had more technical know-how generally, and they interfaced with that, that carpenter directly and asked questions, but the budget wasn't as set and hardline. It was like, it's gonna cost kind of this. Take this, whatever the scenery costs, it's gonna cost to load in. That, that was an age-old adage of how to kind of throw a number at how much a, a load-in costs. Um, but, Let's just say, for instance, the stagehands were making $35 an hour in the 80s. Now they're making some of them 100 and something dollars an hour. So having a manager oversee it and limit your overtime or hire, you know, one man day or one, one man day more or less in a particular day could, over the course of a week, cost $10,000, $20,000. Having to work through a meal penalty, mm-hmm. which the crew gets to eat after three hours and before five hours. So if you go into a sixth hour, everyone gets paid double the hourly rate. So just having one of those happen when you have 35 or 50 stagehands around legitimizes what I get paid and more <laughs> to do the show. So it's really created a job. So the, the going back to your question, the, the people who have done this, I'm 38 years old. I'm of kind of the... I'm actually no longer the youngest generation of people, but I'm kind of the younger group of people who are starting to really do this as the principal people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an era of gentlemen generally, more than women, Mm -hmm. in their mid to late 50s to 70 who were carpenters or worked their own scene shops, and they did this as kind of a thing they discovered they liked to do later in their career. And this is something I went to college in the end. I kind of studied it, and it didn't exist. So uh, there are about three companies that are companies like I have. um, And then there are several individuals that do it too. And then there are occasionally um, a show comes from a place that has a technical director or something, and they they do it themselves. Or they We've done some consulting with with people, and then there are also some institutions. The Manhattan Theater Club has a Broadway theater, um, and they have an in-house production department that handles all their shows. We actually work for the Roundabout for some of their Broadway shows and some of their off-Broadway shows. They don't have an in-house production department. So yeah, everybody does it a little bit differently. (laughs) The qualification, though, as I tell the people in my office, is really you got to do it. You got to yeah. live it. That's that's how you become qualified to do it because it, you can study technical theater and that's great for seeing how physical stuff mm. bolts together. But you can't understand. Um, you know, there's all these rule books for these unions uh, and the and the stagehands union. Again, they've been around just like our tax code. The longer something's been around, the thicker the book is of all yeah. the rules. But the the one of the major things in 
all of the theater union's books is it defers to past practice. It defers to what has happened mm -hmm. on Broadway in the same situation before. And the only way, only way to understand what that is is to live the past practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been doing this like 13 or 14 years now, and uh, I knew nothing 13 <laughs> or 14 years ago. And, you know, the stagehands don't lie to you. No, it's a very closed community. People can get in, but once you're in, you know what someone else said in another theater <laughs> through the the theater grapevine. So there's there's not much blatant dishonesty. Yeah. It's not like the stagehands would have taken advantage of me as a young person, but it's really daunting to be in charge of, yeah. you know, 30 or 40 grown people yeah. who do this all the time and not have any idea, you know, uh, a major thing which sounds ridiculous is coffee break. <laughs> My first day at work, I didn't know that you, there's a particular deli in Midtown <laughs> that provides the coffee break food at 10 a.m. to all the union stagehands. <laughs> and if that coffee does not show up, it is like Gorbachev <laughs> invaded Western Europe. I mean, there's just every, you start hearing complaints and, mm -hmm. and like, uh, and actually, uh, well, we won't mention the deli name, but this spring that deli got shut down for a few days by oh. the health department. And all of a sudden we were in the middle of loading in like eight shows. And we, fortunately, again, cause we're an office. Yeah. I had someone in my office, like, find out all the places in Midtown we could go to for the next few days. Yeah. And we sent our interns out to get coffee and bring it in because we were kind of yeah. nervous about what would happen if nothing showed up at 10 a.m. for coffee <laughs> break. Um, it, is, it is like a ritual. Right in the streets! Exactly. No, it, I mean, it, it, you know, people joke about it. And every time a general manager is going through one of our budgets and they see, like, the coffee line for, a, you know, a musical could be thousands of dollars. They're like, how can this be that much? We'll say... You can go down to the theater and tell them we're not having coffee, but you better be there every day at 10 a.m. to tell them that you made the decision not to have the coffee break because it's going to backfire. Um, so, you know, it's that kind of unique thing. You would never know that from reading a book, but you know that at 9.30 the first day of work when coffee has not shown up and they start asking, you're like, I don't know what to do. Tell me. So anyway, they helped me very quickly, and I, I, I knew what I was doing about coffee very quickly, but... You know, you, you learn, um, I say in my office, like a five-year process, really, to fully understand kind of the goings-on. Not even all the, the you know, technology is always moving ahead, and, and there's LEDs now instead of projectors, and, and uh, that stuff we learn as it happens. But just learning kind of the arc of the season, the fact that in my office, uh, because of the Tony deadline, which is usually the last Thursday in April. All the shows happen in the yeah. spring at the same time. Yeah. You don't you don't understand on paper what yeah. doing nine load-ins at the same time really is. And you don't understand that you can't control when things go wrong and yeah. you still have to deal with them when they do. Yeah. Um, but you can when you live it. <laughs> um, and, and there are great days and there are, there are terrible days. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of always loved about theater is you, it goes back to I signed up to do this because it changes and I'm doing a show and even though it might be a, a big show uh, it is still quicker it still move on to the next project pretty quickly so yeah. in the course of a year you know some of the production managers in my office will work on four to six shows so even if they're working on one all fall long if it goes great you got to 
move on and realize yeah. that the next one might not. And if it's miserable, you know, there's green, there could be greener pastures <laughs> in three days later. Um, and one of the really cool things about the load-in process that I've experienced is, you know, people have a, there's a, perhaps a stigma about stagehands and how kind of salty they are, <laughs> but there are, and most of them, all of them to a certain extent, they're really great people and they, they have character about yeah. them. They go to work at night when everybody else goes home at yeah. night, uh, which is a choice they made a long time ago. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when something goes wrong in the theater, there's this rule book and all these things. And it's amazing how quickly that rule book gets thrown out the window to uh, solve a sprinkler going off yeah. and flooding the stage, uh, which is something I experienced my first year working on Broadway. Yeah. In the middle of the afternoon, uh, a sprinkler had popped off and... All of a sudden, the only people in the building was a carpenter, a couple prop guys, but very quickly, the prop guys were cleaning out the lighting gear and mm. clearing the orchestra pit of all the valuable musical instruments before they got damaged, mm -hmm. and everyone ran into the, to the theater as quickly as they could. We didn't end up having a show that night, but we had one the next day because everyone just all hands on deck. Um, and I don't know if that's a New York thing, a theater thing, but somehow, you know, everyone's very, you know, stands up for their jobs, which is a result of people taking advantage of them a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, and, but when it comes down to like, you know, life or death, real safety mm. things, or like catastrophe, whether real catastrophe yeah. or the show has stopped catastrophe, yeah. um, it's, uh, it's good to see it all come together. But yeah, the, the load-in, and, and the hours of the load-in range, they, mm -hmm. Sometimes they sound great. Eight to five is kind of the short day that we start load-ins, and then they creep up. It's eight to seven. Yeah. And we get to the focus parts, eight to 11. Yeah. And then tech happens. And basically the thing to always remember about the crew, I was talking to someone about this yesterday, is that a long day for an actor is still shorter than what the, the crew comes in at eight o'clock every morning. So yeah. whether you call a tech day or a preview yeah. day a short day for someone, the crew being in at eight... Yeah. It, it, if they're staying till the end of the preview at 11, it's a pretty long day for them. They do it day in and day out, and they kind of check their, their own, like, what they'd want to do at the door because they know they signed up to put the show on, and just seeing that is pretty amazing. Um, and, and the stuff that goes on during a load-in before focus and before tech when it's just the crew, uh, we had a two-by-four fly off of a building next door to a theater, <laughs> Uh, that we were loading into this spring as everyone was going home, and it crashed through the, the skylight, which is a, a, a fire prevention method on the roof of the theater, and glass rained down on the stage just before the end of the day. We didn't cause it. We didn't have to do it, but you know what? We had to make sure it wasn't going to snow or rain through the hole before we left that night. Um, so, you know, there's the plan things. You don't know when it's going to snow in the winter, but you know that that first preview date's not changing. So uh, this year wasn't too bad, but on other years... Uh, you choose to either work in a snowstorm or not work, and then maybe you, you maybe you'll take the day off, but you'll work that Saturday. But sometimes you don't have that option, yeah. so you know you're 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 signing up to do a show, but you're not in control. You 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 you're the person yeah. controlling the schedule, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you're being controlled by that first preview date and everything that has to happen going up to it. And then you get into the fact that theater is an art form. Yeah. And creative people change their minds a lot. And if you're doing a new show, you may load something in, look at it, 
and then load it out of the theater <laughs> or chain it off to yeah. the grid and nobody ever sees it again, <laughs> which we've done. on there, There's a piece of scenery on a revival of a musical that was done in 2003. I went to the invited dress rehearsal. It was a, it was a fiddler on the roof, and the invited dress rehearsal was the last day anyone saw the synagogue <laughs> come in at the end of the show because they decided it, was, it wasn't right for the show and they chained it off to the grid. It's actually more expensive to load it out at that point than to just leave it in the building. You know, crazy decisions are made. And that's also, like, because of the costs involved, we make decisions that, you know, when I tell my wife or my mother that we did something like we bought another fridge for a dressing room at Best Buy, and I have a warehouse in Yonkers with a whole bunch of stuff, including old fridges from old dressing rooms. And they're like, why didn't you go get that? I said, because when you pay for the truck to go up and get it, <laughs> the truck to bring it back, the person to go pull it out of storage, it's actually cheaper to go online, order from Best Buy, and get it delivered to the stage door. And, you know, so we make some of those decisions. And uh, it's, about, it's about that show, the ease of that show. It's not about the global theater marketplace <laughs> or anything. Great. Well, Ben Heller, thank you so much for coming in and very well sharing. I, I have a feeling this information is going to be really eye-opening for a lot of people. There you go. Well, come see a Broadway load and peek through a loading door if you're in New York and see what's <laughs> happening on stage. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And Ben Heller talked to me for well over an hour with just tons of fascinating stories related to this process. And how do you hear that? Well, I do post all of the unedited interviews as well. So if you go to broadwaybullet.com and click on the show notes, you will find the links to those unedited interviews if you would like to hear more. All right. Listening Room. All right. Next week, we're going to hear an interview with the fabulous Karen Mason, um, Broadway veteran and just one of my faves. It was so great to get to talk with her as well as her husband, Paul Rolnick, who is a songwriter and producer himself. Their stuff was so good that I wanted to share a little bit of that in advance and maybe get you excited for hearing that. First, we're going to hear something from Karen Mason. It's about time. And I got to say, I really first fell in love with her uh, from the cast album for uh, Candor and Ebbs and the World Goes Round. Uh, her song interpretation was just brilliant, and I wore that I believe it was a tape back then, out. So I was pleased to talk with her. You're going to get a hear from her and Paul Rolnick next week. But in the meantime, this is from her CD, It's About Time, written by Paul Rolnick. This is Once Upon a Dream Come True. On our first night together, I held you in my arms. And I never felt so innocent before. The moment you touched me, the fear just went away, and I knew I could never want for more. But now I know that nothing lasts forever, and I don't I can almost feel like it was just yesterday And your arms are still around me And I'm still holding you 
Once upon a dream come true Only me and only you Once upon a dream come Breaking the business. Right, several months back, Babette Godfrey, is that pronouncing it right? Perfect. All yes. right. Uh, contacted me saying uh, she'd been going through the process of getting a performance visa and moving from Amsterdam to New York to pursue theater. And uh, what I find is a good story. I said I wouldn't be back until May, which is a ways in the future. But I said, follow up at the end of April. And lo and behold, she actually did follow up. I tell my students, this business is an equal part of it. And it's a simple thing as that. But I will tell you, not many people do. But I, I thought it would be a fascinating story to discuss the visa project, uh, that you're getting your visa and what your hopes are here. Because um, I know that there's a lot of people trying to figure out how mm -hmm. to 
perform here and a lot challenge. of hoops to jump through. For sure, definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah half of 80% uh, is perseverance and, and getting that visa. Um, where, where would you like me to start in this whole... <laughs> well, we know we're going to head in and talk about the visa. Why, why don't we first get into why you wanted to move you know, to New York and from the Netherlands? Yeah. Right? Um, I've always had um, a strong affinity with the English language. Like, I could never see myself do Shakespeare in Dutch. Like, no way. Um, so, at a very young age, I think it was like 10 or 12, I already had my mind set on studying either in the UK or in New York. New York was always like, <laughs> you know, like, if I can start a United Kingdom, that would be great. But New York is like so far away, yeah. like out of my reach. Um so I picked out a couple schools, and then my mom was like, maybe it's a better idea to do drama school in the Netherlands first and then continue on in, abroad. Uh, but I was out of luck in the Netherlands. I made a couple callbacks, but mm -hmm. um, got accepted here into American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Um, and then I did a couple final callbacks in London, and then including here, Juilliard, final callback. But um, the American Academy accepted me, and that was basically um, my, my, my way into the United States. Why America? Mm -hmm. um, I noticed, for instance, that the UK, they're very into um, sticking with their own. Um, like, I felt if, if they had to choose between a Brit or a Dutch girl with an American accent, I kind of felt like <laughs> they would kind of lean towards the British. Um, which, you know, that's, that's their right. And here in New York, there's A, so much more work than there is in Holland. Um, and the pay is, I think, the best in the world in regards to acting and theater. Um, and I feel that they really embrace... A lot of actors just sigh going, this is the best it gets. Really? Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard, like, West yeah. End is insanely hard to get to get into especially as a foreigner uh, unless you've done their you know top drama schools like uh rada lambda and they kind of like instantly are tickets into west end stuff and, and and that's where our conversation is i mean there's a big difference between getting a student visa and then the artist absolutely <laughs> yes um i was up for a challenge there student visa you get if you get into uh, any program of studies actually in the United yeah. States. And then, so... It, yeah, we want you to come pay us money. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the same, same... Come spend money in America. Come spend, yeah. spend money. Yeah. And the same goes for basically your artist visa. Um, a, I would recommend working with an immigration attorney. I did. Um, best money I ever spent. Um, she was brilliant, helped me with my paper. Like, it was a 400-page portfolio that I ended up turning in, and she would reread all my letters of recommendation, and um, it's definitely helpful to have a second set of eyes. Actually, it's, it's her and her assistant. Um, so basically, in a, in a nutshell, the artist visa requires um, a couple categories. Um, it's recommendation letters from prominent industry professionals, it's a three-year itinerary of what you plan to do in the United States because a visa is about three years. And then for those three years, you need to have um, letters of intent, contracts of people that want to work with you. So you basically need to have your work already booked for you for the next three years. 
Wow, um, and actors are lucky if they have work booked for them for the next three weeks. I, or uh, at all, <laughs> yeah. So but they're basically letters, contracts of intent. So um, it means these producers or companies have the intention of working with you, but they're not legally bound to you know, having to work with you. Um, and another part is a huge part of your of the application. The biggest part actually is your portfolio of what you have already done. And you need to prove that you have been booking leading or starring roles in productions, whether they be TV or film or theater. My lawyer preferred that I just stuck with one uh, kind being theater because I've done most of my work in theater. Um, so I had I graduated and from uh, after the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I went to Hunter College. I'm an academic, not I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a nerd. So I did that because it was fun. Um, I don't regret it. It's like such a beautiful experience. Um, But after that, I had one year um, to prep for, you know, before I had to turn in my artist visa application. So I auditioned for everything I could get my hands on. A lot of my friends in the industry um, are at a point where they don't want to do unpaid work anymore. And I was like, I don't care if it's paid, unpaid. I just need to build that portfolio um, so I did five shows in a little over a year, and uh, and then that that whole application was like a second job. Like if I wasn't either working or in a show or rehearsal at home, I was at, on my computer writing. Um, that was an intense year. <laughs> yeah. And um, then you have to do you have to do that all again in three years. Yep. <laughs> yep. But I, I know the process now, and yeah. I know what shows to say yes to, what shows to say no to. Also, they can't just be, quote-unquote, any show. They need to be sort of tied to a reputable theater company or a, a company that's won awards or whatnot. Um, so um, also you have to be like, you have to take into consideration what company am I going to be doing a show for because you don't want to dedicate three months of rehearsal and then a show when it's, you know, you need media representation at the end, like either review or any mention, any paper. So it was a lot of categories that you need to stick to. And then, but the why I recommend working with a, a lawyer is because the immigration website makes it sound like you need to have won um, a Tony and, and whatnot. Yeah. So it's, it's very, very overwhelming and daunting. But you're, if you work with a good lawyer, they will break it down for you and make it seem less, you know, I need to be the next Steven Spielberg in order yeah. to stay. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of the it was the biggest project of my of my life for sure. Well, along that lines, so what are maybe have you discovered things along the way? What would be red flags that would keep an artist from being able to get a visa? I mean, have you heard like where you told don't do this, or you know of other people who did or had certain things on their experience that were like let's avoid this if you're planning on. Well, I would definitely recommend, even though it's hard to be picky, sort of picky about the project that you do, like research the production company or director that you're working for, or especially what where what theater is it going to be? Are you going to be performing in? Because um, it's it's they really look at like because anybody quote unquote yeah. can put on a show or if you have enough money rent a theater yeah. and do that because they want to, but it, it has to mean something like. The immigration wants to see, like, are you booking meaningful roles? Um, and then again, it's, you know, don't you can take it with a grain of salt, I yeah. guess. Um, but um, that's what I would recommend, red flags. Uh, and you'd start as early as you can. 
like I have a bunch of friends who also went to school, international friends who went to school, and then the second you graduate, you need to start auditioning and um, on getting on that track of, you know, requiring recommendation letters. And also what I would recommend is um, if with every director that you work with or a producer, as soon as you finish your project, like ask for a recommendation letter or like don't, I had to do it like all at the end yeah. and I, like get back in touch with people that I hadn't spoken to in three years. And it was quite overwhelming. So now that I, that I know yeah. what needs to be done, I will be a little bit more organized. <laughs> <laughs> so with an artist visa, are you allowed to get other employment or is it only, can it only be arts related? Good question. Yes. Um, it's an artist visa. Yes. It's an artist visa. Um, so legally you're actually yeah. only allowed to do, um, work in entertainment, which is a very broad, you know, yeah. you, you can kind of, um, interpret that as you will. Yeah. I think also like if, if you were, for instance, I in, find the person flipping burgers at McDonald's to be very entertaining. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that's what I thought. Like, you know, just like, Bartend in the club, <laughs> that, that's like entertaining some music. Um, but uh, and then, but the good thing about this visa is, and it's the only visa that does not require you to maintain a paid job in order to uh, keep your visa, because a lot of the other visas you you need to cannot be unemployed for more than ninety days, and, and then you'll be like deported. But because they know that arts are tricky, and sometimes it's based on voluntary um, commitment. Um, it's it, it, that you don't have that pressure of like I need to have a paid job in order to keep my visa. Um, but yes, technically you're only allowed to work in entertainment. Yeah. So be creative in how you like. For instance, there's a Stardust, the restaurant in Times Square yeah. that singing waiters like that would require that that would you know be oh, entertainment. That's definitely pretty legit. Um, you don't have to do much of a stretch to say those waiters at Stardust are entertainers yeah absolutely so but be, definitely be tread tread carefully there yeah <laughs> i think that's all i can say about that <laughs> well uh babette godfrey right yep yep um, so uh, thankfully you came in to talk and, and share your experiences and talk so candidly about some difficult subject but i'm sure that there are other people out there trying to get a visa trying to come to terms with you know their body and how the industry accepts them, and I'm I'm so glad you've been willing to oh, talk absolutely. so honestly for those people, and I and I hope you are still here in three years. Yeah, and... absolutely. <laughs> yeah, hopefully uh, things will go well. Now, again, my first my, the, my only recommendation would be find a good lawyer, um, and then get, start as soon as you can with with the uh, with the project, and then it won't be as daunting as it was for me. All right. Well, thank you for, for having up. me. Yeah. Spotlight advice. Really quickly, before the next interview starts, there were some technical difficulties with the microphone and some pops. I want to apologize, but there is some great content in there, and I wanted to put it up. Here's the interview with Katie Kozlowski. All right. I'm back here talking to an old friend who's been on the show a few times. Katie Kozlowski is uh, heading in some different directions, starting some new things, including, uh, but we're going to talk about some other things about being an actor, but first we'll talk about your new endeavor, Loving to Be Me. Yes. Uh, Hi. 
I'm so happy to be here. It's funny because I'm looking at you. I'm usually like on a computer yeah. and you're a human and you're in front of me. So that's a nice bonus. Yeah. I know it's nice to actually like see a, a face <laughs> instead of a screen. So what, what, what is this thing you're starting? I mean, I, I know what it is, but I'm, you'll describe it better than, than me. And yeah. I think this is a wonderful thing for you to be doing. Thank really, you. Right? Thank you. Yeah. So basically what... Um, what I did was I, uh, after years of being in the acting business and being a voiceover artist and um, being pushed and pulled in all of these directions, I was always sort of like stuck in the middle going, but, but what about me? Like, I know you want me to do this or you want me to be this way or I'm supposed to dress this way or, you know, I, I was so fixated on sort of the feedback of other people that, and taking direction that I had absolutely no idea who I was. And it made for a really challenging life, obviously, because if you don't yeah. know who you are, it's really hard to, um, like, function. Yeah, like, I mean, as, yeah. a, as, a, as a healthy human, you're yeah, like, we were just uh, talking with, um, We were just talking with uh, Daniel Jenkins, who was saying the same thing at a certain point. It's just you learn that walking in the room and sometimes being you is all you need to do, but that's so hard. Oh, it's, like, so foreign. <laughs> and when I was in college, you know, bless their hearts, but they were all about producing this, this like booking machine that walked into a room. And so I became so obsessed with like what other people thought. And this, I mean, it could be in the career business. It could be in like dating business. Yeah. It was, it doesn't matter where you are, but yeah. if you're worrying about what other people think of you or like what they want you to be or, or anything like that, inevitably it, it makes it like a kind of painful journey because then when they don't like you, yeah. you're like, okay, number one, you don't like me. I don't even know who I am. And then number two, like, you don't like me, and I don't know who I am. Like, it, it's so hard to move forward if you have absolutely no grasp on sort of what you're doing and where you are. And, and so because of the way my journey was shaped, I felt like I was always getting that feedback from people. And they were always like, we love you so much. Just be you. You're so amazing. Just be you. And I'm like, but... But how do I do that? Because you don't like me. You love me, but but I'm not right for anything. So how how do I live? Like what do I do? And um, so I decided after a while, you know, I started studying spirituality and NLP, which is a, um, a like a, a loose form of hypnotherapy. It's based on hypnotherapy and and looking at sort of your behaviors and and I began to recognize that so many of us just we have no grasp on how to actually pay attention to ourselves so that we can yeah. monitor our behaviors. And then if you can monitor your behaviors, then you can actually kind of tune in and know when you're doing something that's helping you or hurting you. And it's really that simple. It's like, if I act this yeah. way, does this help me? Like, does this feel good? Does this get me what I want? Or does it take me further away? And what I found was like, I would say, well, maybe like 75% of the time, I was doing things that actually didn't feel good, but I had no idea. Yeah. I, like this, is, I think there's a problem all a, lo a lot of creative artists face. It's so hard to separate. You know, I mean, even at grad school at Holland's where I was at, you know, I was like, you guys need to learn that I'm criticizing your work. I'm not criticizing you. Right. You know that we're we're talking about your work here. Right. 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 And that my not liking the work does not mean I don't like you. Right, <laughs> right, right. But the work... And it's so... But yeah. it's really so hard to separate it is, that. right. And that's because, like, it's an extension of you, especially if you're an yeah. artist. And, like, what I'm doing now is I'm looking at personal expression and sort of, like, the way you express yourself. And um, what I began to realize is, like, okay, in reality, everything's an expression of you. So your art, your work is you. 
in a in an essence, right? Like it's yeah. you're communicating something, like you're sharing a piece of yourself. So it's really hard when someone's like, mm, maybe you need to change this, or mm, I'm not really sure that part works. But if you have a healthy grasp on yourself, then you can actually take it and go, cool, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna filter that through and I'm gonna use it to make myself better. Not like yeah. I'm gonna take it as a knife in the heart and you know, if I did an audition, there were a couple of times I would finish and I'd be like waiting for them to like start clapping and be like, you're amazing, Katie. You're so phenomenal. And they don't do that. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen, right? And so yeah. then I would walk out with my head down like they hated me. But they didn't hate me. It's not their business. Like it's not their job to boost your confidence, yeah. right? Like we're supposed to be confident. But that's kind of hard. Yeah. When your whole life is based on like yourself out there yeah like it's especially difficult like for is it yeah i mean and, and playwrights directors have one thing we can at least step outside of ourselves and, and it's still hard but for actors right it is your body your voice your right. emotions right yeah. are are your instruments so right. i think i it becomes even harder to separate right yeah that healthiness of right. self and it is your body and like that was <sighs> i think my biggest struggle was like half the time they didn't like my body you know, they were like, well, you're just too big or you're just too curvy or you're just too this or, you know, it was always like it was physical things that got in the way. And how are you supposed to react to that when you're like, well, they really liked me, but like I'm a size eight and they need a size six. I'd or, like to answer that, but that would sound like very like uh, what, <laughs> sexual harassment. No, in this it's situation. not sexual harassment. You know <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, for me to, to say like, you are absolutely there's, amazing. There's nothing wrong with me. And that, that was like the yeah. most messed up part was yeah. like. I would sit there scratching my head going like, I don't understand it. Like what's wrong with me? Because nobody, I don't seem to fit, like I don't fit the costume or like I don't fit the type or I, but I'm, but I'm wonderful. So it was, a, it's a matter of like flipping the story and going from the inside, walking in the room, exactly what you're saying, yeah. like walking in the room or in life, like this isn't just about performing. This is about dating. This is about like living your life, right? We all get rejected. We all we're constantly putting ourselves out there and knowing that if you lead with your best foot forward, yeah. basically knowing you're confident with who you are, then when someone's like, mm, I really love you, but but this piece just doesn't fit, you can go, okay, no problem, because I'm actually happy yeah. with myself. I get it. But if you're not, then you're like, oh, well, if I had a rib removed, you know, like yeah. but if you look at Hollywood back in like, I just watched Feud, right? And, and mm -hmm. they were showing um, uh, Betty Davis and, and um, I don't think it was Betty Davis. It was, um, uh, oh my gosh, why can't mm -hmm. I think of her name? Who's the, I'm not familiar with Feud, actually. That so. Feud was, um, Jessica Lange was playing mm -hmm. Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford had her molars, her teeth pulled. She actually had her teeth <laughs> removed so she would have a different jawline. And like, this is what we're accustomed to. So that's kind of like, problematic if that's the way we've been doing things you know like oh no problem just yeah just starve yourself oh okay yeah. i might die yeah but i might then fit in the costume or look better yeah. so you know all of these things swimming around so how do so what did you develop in your program to um to so, take this from helping yourself to helping others right yeah so so basically it's developing a system of um, learning how to be able to sort of pay attention, be mindful, right? 
pay attention to yourself, to your patterns, your behaviors. The more you can identify sort of what you're doing and why you're doing it um, and kind of where it came from, then you can address it and you can actually stop it. So, you know, what? once upon a time I had this great acting teacher who I love, and I find very, I found a lot of parallels between developing a character and sort of developing yourself, right? But I had this great acting teacher and he said once, he said, look, like being an actor, your job is to be a detective of the human spirit, right? Like. Mm-hmm become like pay attention to like why you do things like how do you do things it's the same thing that's a great quote what's his name richard sabellico richard sabellico because yeah we, we probably put that quote in that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah yeah richard sabellico said that okay <laughs> and he was um he was like someone that i studied with for quite a long time and i learned a lot about being a real actor from him like how to be a real character as opposed to a caricature and he said that And then, so I take all of these sort of things that I studied as an actor and I go, okay, so how can we apply this to reality? And it's the same thing. It's like, you want to become a detective of your own behaviors so you can spot your behaviors, so you can identify them, so that you can stop them. Um, And that's really, honestly, it's it's a matter of of learning how to work with the subconscious mind and the subconscious mind. I mean, that's that's sort of a whole can of worms that we, I don't think we have 10 hours to learn about the subconscious (laughs) mind, but basically... That's the stuff that you don't know you're doing. You don't know is running in the background, the thoughts, the um, patterns, the beliefs. Like that's, that's literally um, sort of in the shadows. It's kind of like in the yeah. wings. Like you don't know it's there, but it's doing stuff. Um, and so that's kind of the most important piece. You've got to actually understand what's happening under the surface. If you understand what's happening under the surface, you can change everything. But you have to start at the root. Um, so that's what it's about. It's about actually going in and, and looking at that and getting to know yourself. So, yeah, lovingtobeme.com, you know, it's all there. Social media, mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you name it. I have it. And it's all, you know, that's the easiest. One-stop shopping. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Katie Kozlowski. And I, I look forward to I know I'm going to be bringing you in to talk to our, our first batch of students at the, you know, at the Providence, your University of Providence. Yes, so, I, and I love that word. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks for coming Thank in. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Shake my hand. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Listening room. Paul Rolnick is the husband of Karen Mason and acclaimed songwriter and producer on his own. They're on the show next week together to talk about how they work together and how they work apart. But Paul Rolnick also has his own CD release, Shoot for the Moon. So um, in anticipation, we're going to play a song from that that he wrote. He wrote this with Dennis Scott. It is a duet with uh, his wife, Karen Mason. It is called You Sure Know How to Kiss. You don't act like a hero Who's always in control You don't smile like an angel Who's out to save my soul you don't talk like a poet reciting perfect rhyme But you do something special that gets me every time You sure know how to kiss You sure know what I like You sure know how to kiss You sure know how Touch me in the middle of the night. The 
don't shine like an actress Who's reaching out for fame You don't cry like a singer Who's fighting back the pain No, you don't stop to think about The things you say or do But the sins in you Well, that wraps up another episode. Remember, I'm going to be getting interviews for a whole other batch of episodes. I'm going to be in New York City from October 23rd through the 27th. That's right after this uh, in 2017, if you missed this. If you got an interesting story, an idea, let somebody know. Have them drop me a line at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. We'll see what we can do. Uh, it's been a lot of fun getting the show back on the air and going. Uh, it's nice having a student from the University of Providence go along with me to help out, and they get to meet a lot of people. Catherine Chandler's going along this time. And remember, one of the sponsors is uh, the brand new program that I created at the University of Providence in Great Falls, Montana, and that is the School of Theater and Business Arts. You're going to learn both the art of being an artist by experimenting around in so many different ways, and the business of being an artist, learning how to present yourself, learning how to manage your career, learning how to pitch your projects, all sorts of stuff. So find out more about that at uprovidence.edu. Also, again, special thanks to our continuing location sponsors, the Dramatist Guild Fund. They provide so many wonderful service to artists, including the room that I get to use and uh, in the lap of luxury with all the guests. All right. 
We will see you again in two weeks. We're going to close off uh, the first half of the season, at least this batch that I got last May, talking to a couple people from the League of Professional Theater Women. We have also got that interview I've been telling you about with Paul Rolnick and uh, Karen Mason. We've also got a a fun, fun interview with an 82-year-old cabaret veteran, the self-proclaimed king of gay geezer power, Ira Lee Collings. So be sure you catch that. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been listening to Broadway Bullet.